I want to talk to you today about the last loving words of a very long letter. I debated whether to even preach to you from the 16th chapter of 1 Corinthians because to some degree it's one of those things where you're just tagging a bunch of stuff on at the end. But then as I read through it again and uh, prayed and asked the Lord what to do, he really showed me that there are some very important things to come at the end of this chapter. So what I'm going to, at the end of this letter, in this last chapter. So what I want to do is I'm not going to read the whole chapter through and then we're going to read it a portion at a time as we go through. And by way of introduction, let me just remind you that I think we ought to be interested in what Paul thought was worth mentioning at the very end of this long letter. Now, the reason I say that is not because Paul is so important, although he is very important. I think we need to remember (coughs) that this epistle, this letter, (coughs) as Paul wrote it, became the Word of God. And it is the Word of God. And so these last few things that are sort of stuck on at the end of this epistle, just like people do, you know, we write a letter or an email, and we stick on a PS, and then maybe a PPS, and so forth. These things are not accidental. This is the Holy Spirit uh, giving us a last few important matters. But there's one other aspect of this as well. Remember how Paul ends verse or chapter 15? He says there in verse 58, Therefore, my beloved brother, brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, or excelling in the Lord's work, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. And so I'm pretty sure that as Paul finished that wonderful chapter on the resurrection, one of the most exciting chapters in all of the Bible, as as Paul describes for us the resurrection and defends it from so many different perspectives, and he comes to that end and he says, remember that life is worth living. Remember that when you die, you're going to step into glory because you're going to be raised from the dead. You're going to be with God. Your whole body and soul are going to be transformed into Christ's glorious, into a likeness of Christ's glorious body. And you're going to be rewarded by the resurrection. Your life as a Christian will be worthwhile. So be steadfast, be unmoving and, and, and firm and determined and abounding in God's work. And then the thought strikes his mind, well, what is this work that they're to be abounding in? I've spent a lot of time in this book, in this epistle, uh, criticizing them. I've criticized them for their factionalism. I've criticized them for their self-centeredness, for their immaturity. I've criticized them for the way that they don't love each other, that they need to love each other more. I've criticized them all the way through this book. What are some of the things they need to abound in? And so he begins to mention some of them. And we're just going to take them one at a time. But as I say, I'm going to watch the clock. And we may skip one or two because uh, there are a couple of things I definitely don't want you to miss from this last chapter. But Paul begins in chapter 16, verse 1, saying this, Now about the collection for the saints, you should do the same as I instructed the Galatian churches. On the first day of the week, each of you is to set something aside and save in keeping with, and save in keeping with how he prospers, so that no collections will need to be made when I come. When I arrive, I will send with letters those you recommend to carry your gracious gift to Jerusalem. If it is suitable for me to go as well, they can travel with me. Now, as someone as well said, the essential features of Christian giving are all stated in this short paragraph, and you'll see them on the screen behind me. There's the time of giving, that is to say, the first day of the week, the day of worship, which would be Sunday. Uh, it's, I'll tell you something. You have 
difficulty. In fact, it's, it's such tough sledding to try to make it out that Christians are supposed to worship on Saturday that somehow you have to always go back to the Old Testament and drag in a bunch of Old Testament law to make that happen. God's people, after the resurrection, God's people worshiped God on the day of resurrection, which was Sunday, and that's the day you're supposed to give. Secondly, there's the regularity of giving, that is, weekly and faithfully. And thirdly, there's the participants in giving. That is, each one of you is to save up. Each one of you is to give. Everyone can give something. And may I say that one of the secrets to giving more is to start by giving something. And one of the secrets to having more is to start by giving something. But that's a whole different sermon. We have to move on. Then there's the participants. I've said that. The basis of giving, that as you prosper, that is not in comparison with others. You don't need to compare yourself with how you used to be because you may not be prospering today like you once prospered in the past. Or And here's a real, I think, a real problem for a lot of people. They hold off on giving because they say to themselves, when I start to prosper, however they define prosper, I'll start giving when I start to prosper. My friends, you start giving as the Lord has prospered you today. And who knows how he may prosper you tomorrow. I, I, I think there's a principle here not to be missed. Now, number five, the manner of the giving. We're to give graciously, joyfully, generously. How do I get that? Well, remember, this is the first thing Paul says after always abounding in the work of the Lord. And so we need to be, need to be abounding in our giving as well. Number six, the accountability of giving. Notice how Paul is careful to let someone else handle God's money in order to avoid all accusations of personally profiting from the giving of the saints. And that's one of the reasons, for example, that I never help count the money. And, and I don't know who gives what, never have, don't want to know. When people have tried to tell me occasionally, I've tried to stop them. I have stopped them, so they won't tell me what they give or what somebody else gives. I don't want to know. That's between you and God. I believe it is essential that it be between you and God, and that every church is wise if they take steps to make sure that the money is handled in such a way that you can defend uh, the chain of custody all along the way. All right, number seven, the universality of giving. That is to say, Paul says, I'm teaching you in Corinth what I've already taught the churches in Galatia. This applies to all churches everywhere throughout all time. And though hinted at here, two other features of giving, that is the necessity of giving and the purpose of giving, I think are better discussed in other places in Scripture, such as 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 and perhaps Mark 12. But let's move on to the question of hospitality. Look at verse 5, if you will. I will come to you after I pass through Macedonia. For I will be traveling through Macedonia. Remember, Macedonia is not very far from Corinth. Achaia and Macedonia are side by side. And so he says, and perhaps I will remain remain with you or even spend the winter so that you may send me on my way wherever I go. I don't want to see you now just in passing, for I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord allows. But I'm going to stay or I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost because a wide door for effective ministry has been opened for me, yet many oppose me. And then he says something interesting, at least I find it so. Verse 10, if Timothy comes, see that he has nothing to fear from you because he is doing the Lord's work just as I am. Therefore, no one should look down on him. Send him on his way in peace so he can come to me for I'm expecting him with the brothers. I will pause right there just to say a couple of things. First of all, I want us to let Paul's defense of Timothy be a reminder that in those days, churches were very concerned to help the various missionaries and apostles and apostle-type ministries, apostolic ministries that were going on in those days. The the churches were very interested to support all of this through their hospitality, welcoming Paul, stay at my house, welcoming Timothy, stay at our house, and and so forth and so on. But it needs to be a reminder to us in modern times that 
denominational leadership and the entire missionary enterprise ought to be hugely important to congregations. That is, it ought to break our hearts that missionaries are often the ignored and forgotten among God's people. How many of you remember the name of the man that Grant announced a while ago would be coming to our church in a couple of weeks? He's going to be speaking over at Thornhill, and he's going to be... Now, if you're one of the secretaries or something, don't raise your hand. How many of you remember the name of the man that... Some of you do? A handful of you? Okay, good, good, good. Bud Fuchs is coming. Dear friends, he's in a very crucial ministry, and we ought to be uh, interested, vitally interested. We need to see him as an extension of God's work through us. It ought to break our hearts, then, that missionaries are often the ignored and forgotten among God's people. The question isn't what the missionary deserves, but what such apathy may say about the church's attitude toward the Great Commission. There was a time when Christians were vitally interested in what God was doing in other churches and around the world. In such times, missionaries were kinds of, they were kind of heroes, and, and deservedly so, in my own opinion. Large meetings were held solely for the purpose of meeting missionaries and learning about their work so that Christians could pray for them with knowledge and with understanding and feeling. Children were encouraged to emulate these people, and parents were proud when their children committed themselves to a lifetime of gospel service. I feel like we've lost something in this regard. Comedians used to get a lot of mileage out of jokes about Jewish mothers who wanted their sons to be doctors or lawyers and always wanted their daughters to only marry a doctor or a lawyer. A lot of jokes about such things. Seriously, there was a time in the Christian world when families took special pride in being able to speak to their children on the, uh, speak of their children on the mission field. My son's a doctor. Well, <laughs> I can shade you. I can put you in the shade. My son's a missionary or my daughter. Today, we're more Jewish, I fear, than Christian in this era, in this area. And I can only say, God help us. Then there's this area about, of partnership and ministry. About our brother Apollos, Paul says, and we're reading now from verse 12 in the text, about our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to come to you with the brothers, but he was not at all willing to come now. However, he will come when he has an opportunity, or he will come when he has an opportunity. Now, what's going on here? Don't forget that in the very first chapter of 1 Corinthians, Paul has raised this problem of factionalism. There were some who belonged to the Paul party, some who belonged to the Peter party, some who belonged to the Jesus party, and there were some who belonged to a, a party called by the name of this fantastic orator, this man named Apollos. And Paul hated this factionalism. And he wanted them to understand that he and Apollos, and, and so he mentions Apollos several times through the epistle, that he and Apollos are both laborers together with Christ, co-laborers with Christ. And that's, that's their job. Uh, may, one may water and, and, and one, may, one may plant and one may water, but it's always God who gives the increase. And Paul wants them to understand that it's wrong to prefer one to the other or to somehow praise one over the other or even worse, to pitch one. You know, our party is stronger than your party because we belong to Apollos and you only belong to Paul or whatever it may be. And so it may be that Apollos didn't even want to go to Corinth right then lest he add to that factionalism. And Paul is letting them know that they're standing together against this spirit of factionalism in the church. God help us to resist such things. Now we come to something that I think is absolutely crucial in our understanding of this last chapter. In verse 13, Paul says, be alert, stand firm in the faith, act like a man, be strong, 
Your every action must be done with love. Let's break this down into several parts. First of all, be alert. Now, you'll notice there are several translations. If you look this up, some will say be alert. Others will say be watchful. Uh, The word can be well translated either way. The Greek word behind this can be translated either way. But I think we need to understand the difference between the two English words. The word alert refers to a state of wakefulness. You can be alert for no good reason. I'm just, I'm wide awake. I don't know, I'm just wired. I'm wide awake. Too much sugar, I guess. I'm wide awake. I'm alert. I'm alert. And, uh, but the second word, be watchful, speaks to the purpose for wakefulness. In other words, why are you alert? Why are you wide awake? Because you're watching for something. What is it? Well, I think it's to the second of these particular issues that this passage speaks. We're to be watchful for something in particular. We're not merely to be wide awake. We're to be focused on watching for danger. That is, danger to our souls and to the souls of those who are always watching us. Let me speak to both for just a moment. We watch over ourselves because we know we are still a combination of saint and sinner. One of the things that God blessed my heart with as I studied for the previous chapter, then I began to realize the difference between our natural bodies that are of this earth and our resurrection bodies that are of heaven and from heaven, this new creation called the resurrection body. Do you remember how I illustrated it? That in our, in our earthly bodies, we find that this body is forever trying to drag us away from our spiritual life. And I illustrated it a couple of weeks ago by saying, you know, you say to yourself, I'm going to get up half an hour early in the morning and pray. But when that 5.30 alarm goes off, or 4.30, or whatever that extra half hour is for you, Four o'clock, when that alarm goes off, your body says, oh, I'm too tired. And so you agree with your body. I'll pray tonight before I go to bed. And along comes 9 or 9.30 or 10 or 10.30 at at night, and, and your body says, oh, I'm too tired. I'll pray in the morning. And your body prevents you from ever doing what your soul desires. And there are many other illustrations I could give, obviously, where our body betrays us and traps us and tricks us into a spiritual life that is never what our soul desires it to be. That's why Paul speaks in Romans 7 of the good that I want to do, I don't do, and the evil I don't want to do, I find myself doing, who will separate me from this body of death. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And someday he's going to give us a resurrection body from above, from heaven, and that body is going to second every spiritual emotion, every spiritual emotion that the Holy Spirit makes in our lives, that body will second it and support it and strengthen us. But today, we watch over ourselves because we know that we We are still a combination of saint and sinner. We don't have our resurrection bodies yet. And until we do, we are always on the cusp of disaster. The saint in us must be vigilant, lest the flesh with its desires dominate and destroy our Christian lives. Secondly, we watch over ourselves because others are always watching us. Now let's think about that. Who is it who's watching us? Have you ever heard people say, I don't care what other people think, I'm just going to do what I want to do? I, I'm, I'm, I am me. I've got to be. I've got to be me. Listen, we watch over ourselves because others are always watching us. Who is it that's watching? First of all, God is watching. What do you think Paul has in mind when he says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit? Let me give you a couple of verses. 
One from the Old Testament, one from the New, to remind you of how God is watching you, watching us, watching me. Second Chronicles 16, 9, For the eyes of Yahweh roam throughout the earth to show himself strong for those whose hearts are completely his. God is looking for people who are completely given to him, and he loves to show himself strong on their behalf. His eyes are roaming throughout the earth looking for such people. So I say to you, God is watching. Well, that's the Old Testament. And you say, well, didn't a lot of things change? There were some very significant changes, but none of them contradict any of the truth that is taught in the Old Testament. So let's look at the New Testament just for a moment from 1 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 10. For the one who wants to love life and to see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. You might be asking yourself, why? Why do I have to keep my tongue from speaking evil and lies and so forth? Verse 11, and he must turn away from evil and do what is good. He must seek peace and pursue it. Why? Why, why, why? Verse 12, because the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their request. Doesn't this say the exact same thing? Isn't this exactly the same truth that we've already read about back in 2 Chronicles? But the face of the Lord is against those who do what is evil. And so God help us. God help us then to remember that we need to be watchful over how we live our lives, what we say and what we do, and even our tone of voice, because God is watching. But there are other people who are watching. How about the people over whom we have influence? You may, not, you may not choose to have influence over people, but you do have influence over people just by being alive. So who are the people who are watching us? Who are the people that we influence? Our children, our friends, church members, the unbelieving world. Again, what do you think Jesus had in mind when he warned against offending one of these little ones? Remember what he says? Rather than lead a little one into sin, it would be better if you had a millstone tied around your neck and you were cast into the deepest sea. That'd be a a, a safer end than what's going to come to those who deliberately lead children. If you want to know why we need to pray for our school teachers and our principals and those who set the agenda and the itinerary, the the, uh, the teaching uh, schedule for our, our, our public schools and as well as many of our private schools. You want to know why you need to pray for them? Not because of just what they're doing to the kids as they teach them about perverted sex in kindergarten and grade one. You need to pray for them because of what's happening to their souls. If they are deliberately leading our children into lifetimes of misery and ruin, and many of them are, then that means that their fate is unbelievably horrible. And we need to pray for their souls on that basis. God help us. Then we need to pray because we need to watch over ourselves because the unseen world is watching us. What do I mean by that? I'm talking about angels and demons. I haven't emphasized this a lot in the years that I've been here. I have mentioned it occasionally, but I promise you I've always believed what I'm about to say. And I've in the past preached entire messages on it. But in ways that we barely understand, we are daily influenced By the unseen spirit, of course, but also by the angels and demons that are on this earth, on planet earth. And moreover, we, how we live influences the unseen world. And we need to keep that in mind. Strengthening the work of God's servants, the angels, hindering the work of God's enemies, the devil and his demons. So, The problem is we watch over ourselves because we do not want to expose ourselves to the opportunistic evil forces of the world. Do you know what I mean by opportunistic? 
Have you ever let your system run down? You're not getting enough sleep. You're not eating well. You're working too hard. You've got all kinds of tension in your life. Your body is not what it ought to be. It's weaker. It, it grows weak. And what happens? An opportunistic germ either a cold germ or a a cold virus or some stronger virus, an opportunistic germ jumps on you and makes you sick. You don't watch yourself. You allow your spiritual life to dry up. You're not reading your Bible anymore. I mean, really feeding on the word. You're not praying anymore. You're not really in contact in a constant communication with, with God above through Jesus Christ, his son. You're allowing your spiritual life to dry up and get weak and opportunistic demonic spirits can jump right in there and drive you and, and lead you into directions you never imagined that you would go. And so we do not want to expose ourselves to the opportunistic evil forces of the world. Instead, we want to live in such a way that angels are allowed or even encouraged to clear the path for us. All right. We watch over ourselves because we have no idea this is my last step of, last thought about watching over ourselves. We have no idea when we will step into God's presence. Either we're going to die or Christ is going to return. And when either of these happens, we need to be found busy doing the master's business. That is, if we want a reward, that's what we need to be doing. So God help us to watch over ourselves. Do you have a plan for watching over yourself? That is to say, do you have a plan for maybe an accountability partner? Uh, I'm going to just share this with you. I think I may have shared it once before, but I'll share it again. It's such a joy to be able to sing God's God's truth with my son and to know that my other son also lives for Jesus. Now, you know, if you ask, are are your two sons perfect men? No, they're not. And I could tell you things about their imperfections if if you really needed to know. But they could tell you about their dad's imperfections if you really needed to know. And Josh, I promise not to talk about you if you promise not to talk about me. How about that? But uh, oh, we'll see. <laughs> I appreciate that affirmation there, that vote of confidence. But here's the point. Uh, when our son, our other son, was in, uh, was in uh, university and in that age, he and three other godly young men made a pact that they would keep one another accountable for their relationships with young women. And of those four, three are married, and all three entered into marriage as virgins. And and that's an important point for you to know. They kept each other accountable. I'm saying, do you have a plan to watch over yourself? They had a plan to watch over themselves. Make sure you've got a plan to watch over yourself. Uh, That's enough about that. Let's talk about standing firm in the faith for just a moment. Here are some expressions of a focused life. First, standing firm in the faith. Faith is more than a commitment to a set of Bible truths. It is that, but it's more than that. It's by faith that we have a relationship with the living God through Jesus Christ. We're faithful to Christ because we love Him and desire to be faithful to Him more than life itself. And the problem is that in our day, there are parts of the faith life that we're tempted to give up. For example, we're tempted to give up on sexual purity and the need for personal holiness. We're tempted to give up on the necessity of Christ alone as the Savior of the world and to agree with our diverse friends, our multicultural friends, that, well, if you believe in God, you're okay. We're tempted to give up on the very idea of the Bible as containing a worldview for which Christ holds us accountable. We're tempted to give up on the call to public witness and making disciples, and we're tempted to give up on believing that we need to follow the Ten Commandments even to this day. One of the things that will astound you if you've got eyes to see, you read through the the New Testament and you'll discover that almost in every 
every gospel, every epistle, all, over and over again, the Ten Commandments are referred to, are alluded to, quoted from, supported, encouraged, over and over again. They are the basic foundation for godly living. But that brings us to the most controversial passage here. Notice it's the third phrase in verse 13, act like a man. And the Greek word andritsomai literally means be manly. Now, some of your translations may say be courageous. It's not, again, entirely wrong because courage is implied in acting like a man or being manly. The problem is we live in a world that actively resists such terms as manly virtues or womanly virtues. If you go to university, both of those are going to be resisted, those terms. They don't like either term. Our world insists that there are only human virtues and that they are all found in varying degrees in both sexes. That's the way the world wants to put it. We're all the same. Maybe a little bit of difference in our plumbing, but other than that, we're all the same. God help you to hear what I say next prayerfully and with your heart open to God's truth and and, and, and let me assure you that I don't think I'm overstepping God's word at all. So your argument is not with me as much as I think it is with God's word if you don't like what I say next. The world needs men. And we know that because God made men, he had a purpose for men as men. Whatever the believing world may think, let us who worship and serve the Creator God glorify Him for His wisdom in making half the human race men. The world needs men. Now I'm going to say something really important here. The world needs men to be godly men. Godly men. Uh, so many people are now offended. So many women are offended at the very idea of manhood because they've, been, they've encountered so many ungodly men. Christian men, even if the world doesn't understand you, you need to be Christian men, godly men. Because if there are not men, then women will have trouble being women. For example, Genesis 2.18 states specifically that God made woman to be man's complement. I know lots of translations say things like helper and so forth, but if you study it, I think you're going to find that complement is a a better word and even a more accurate word in understanding the Hebrew word there. So God made women to be man's complement, but logically that means that man is woman's complement. He needs her and she needs him. Neither man nor woman can be what they are created to be unless their lives are focused on helping the other be what they are created to be. Now, the world needs godly, manly men because, and here's where I'm really digging a deep hole for myself with some people, maybe nobody in this room, but some people would be possibly already screaming from the pews if they were hearing me. The world needs godly, manly men because they have a special capacity for courage under fire. This same phrase, that is, godly or manly men, be men, be manly men, and so forth, that phrase is found more than once in the Old Testament, and in each case, the need for courage in the face of danger is the context in which it is used. Now, let me give you an illustration of what I'm talking about, and I suspect that in the next two weeks, I will be talking more about this, but 
you can go ahead. I, I, I won't hide any of this from you. You go ahead when you get home this afternoon or this evening sometime and Google something like this. 116 Chinese pastors statement. Just Google that. 116 Chinese pastors statement. You don't even need the apostrophe. You don't need the possessive. Just put it like that. Because here's what happened. Last week, just this past week, 116 Chinese pastors put out a statement on the new religious regulations that are being enforced by the Chinese government under President Xi Jinping. Now, what's going on is churches are being destroyed. uh, Crosses are being ripped off of buildings. Whether the building is destroyed or not, crosses are being ripped off. Church congregations are being dismissed at gunpoint. Christians are being forced to sing atheistical hymns in praise of the communist government and its leadership by name and so forth. And all of this under these new regulations that were established, promulgated in cha- in, back in 2017, but began to be put in force in May of this year, 2018. And so uh, I want you to listen to the statement, just a few words from this statement from these 116 Chinese pastors and, and I want you to see if you don't sense manly virtues coming through. Listen to what the Chinese pastors have said. And by the way, don't just listen. Be in prayer for these men, for their congregations that support them, and for the many thousands of other Chinese pastors and congregations and individual Christians who've signed this statement online. And the statement, this, this, the signatures are just getting more and more. So here we are. This is what they write to the Chinese government. And much more besides And and we'll talk about that possibly in days to come. But they say, we are obligated to announce bad news to the authorities and to all of society. Now just try to imagine 116 Canadian pastors coming together and writing a letter to Premier Justin, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and saying, we are obligated to announce bad news to the authorities and to all of society. God hates all attempts to suppress human souls and all acts of persecution against the Christian church, and he will condemn and judge them with righteous judgment. This is what they're saying. But we are even more obligated to proclaim good news to the authorities and to all of society. Jesus, the only begotten Son of God, the Savior and King of mankind, in order to save us sinners, was killed, was buried, and rose from the dead by the power of God, destroying the power of sin and death. In His love and compassion, God has prepared forgiveness and salvation for all who are willing to believe in Jesus, including Chinese people. In other words, they're saying this is not some Western import. This is not something foreign to China. This is for the Chinese people. At any time, anyone can repent from any sin, turn to Christ, fear God, obtain eternal life, and bring great blessing from God upon his family and his country. Amen Amen is right. Amen. Manly men speaking in a manly way to people who need to hear godly, manly men. And so when Paul says, be a man, I want us to... At Hawkwood Baptist Church, encourage our men to be as manly in Christ as they can possibly be. And let's take guidance and leadership from those who display such characteristics already. There are a couple other manly virtues here. Be strong and act with love. And you've heard the words of love in this Chinese pastor's statement already. I want to finish by going all the way to Paul's significant sign-off. And this is what we'll close with. Verse 21, Paul says, This greeting is in my own hand. That is Paul his own signature to indicate authenticity. This is his epistle. He may have dictated it in Sosthenes, our brother, as he mentions in chapter 1. Sosthenes, our brother, may have been the one who actually wrote it down. But now we see Paul's signature. And then in verse 22, 
If anyone does not love the Lord, a curse be on him. Anathema is the Greek word. You've probably heard it before. A curse be on him. Maranatha, that is, Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with all of you in Christ Jesus. Now, how many of you are used to church leaders cursing people? Yeah, I'm not going to start today, so don't get nervous. This curse, though, is connected with the hope of Christ's return. It's almost certainly a warning to the troublemakers at Corinth. And he's saying to them, you be sure that you're living in love with one another, because if you're only pretending to be a Christian, you'll find yourself under a curse when Christ returns. But that may be the, the interpretation, and that's kind of the general interpretation that, the, that the, uh, uh, the commentaries give. But there may be more to it than that. We must never forget that Paul had real enemies. They hated Christ. They hated the gospel. And most of all, they hated Paul for insisting on preaching both of them. That is, preaching Jesus as the Messiah and the gospel of God, God's grace without works, by faith alone, by grace alone. They hated this. They hated Paul for preaching these things. So, in this way, those Chinese pastors that I mentioned earlier are much more Pauline than any of us have ever been. Remember what they said? God, you know, we've got bad news for you, Xi Jinping. We've got bad news for you. God hates people who persecute his people. You're going to have to deal with him. Same spirit. I, I, I see a, a, an echo of, of Paul in what the Chinese have written, and much more besides. Google this thing and read it and see what they have to say. It's the most balanced presentation of Christian love and Christian determination I've ever read, period. It's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. So here's what they did. They fearlessly declare their position, and they're not afraid to threaten world leaders with the wrath of God who do not hear and obey the gospel. Well, but they're unnecessarily offensive, some Canadian Christians are tempted to say. They should be more like us. Au contraire, mon frère. We should be more like them. The Chinese church is growing nine to ten times faster than the population. The same cannot be said for us. So who needs to influence whom is the question here. Hmm. In fact, we're steadily losing ground. And the difference is, we haven't put Christ's church first in our lives. We haven't put Christ's church first in our hearts. We haven't put Christ first in our hearts. You know why I know? Because unless you put Christ's church first in your heart, you haven't put Christ in first in your heart. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. For her. He, his church is first in his heart. He's going to marry his church someday. We're going to be his bride someday. He loves his church. He doesn't love you individually. He loves you individually in his church. And it's important that we understand that that's how that works. So the difference is we haven't put Christ's church first in our lives. We haven't put Christ's church first in our hearts. We're glad enough for freedom of religion. We're glad enough for the services and the benefits of public religion and being able to go to church when we want to. But what we're really passionate about is our own well-being. God help us. Would you bow your heads, please? While our heads and hearts are bowed before the Lord, I'm just going to ask you to consider your own passion. Are you passionate for the church's well-being? Are you passionate for Jesus' sake? And, and godly men, would you be prepared? I understand that there's a, 
a right way and a wrong way to do everything. But are you prepared to join a group? Would you be prepared? I'm not saying I'm starting to organize one, but I'm just asking you as a general statement, would you be prepared to join a group that would comprehensively put together a, a stand against the governments of Canada, for example, that want to take away uh, a parent's right to influence how their children are being educated in the schools and replace the parents with the leaders of these things called gay-straight alliances that want to take your children into homosexuality, into bisexuality, into transgenderism, and to a host of other perversions. Uh, would you be willing to stand against that? And what about, what about, and while your heads are bowed, you need to keep this in mind, this past year, Hawkwood Baptist Church turned down the opportunity to have government money or government support to hire three summer workers. And it cost us, in terms of extra labor among our people, it cost us dearly uh, in terms of needing more volunteers because we refused to check the box that said we agree with the government's position on um, abortion and on sexuality. Now, we, che- we didn't check the box, and, and all we lost was the salaries for three summer workers. But guess what? If they get away with that, next year they're going to insist that the church check the box if we want to keep our tax-free status. Our position as a uh, nonprofit organization, a charity. If they get away with that, you know what they're going to do the third year? Ah, Maybe 10 years from now, but eventually you know what they're going to get around to? If you don't check the box, you can't own property. What's going to have to happen... How how hard are we going to have to be pushed before we take a lesson from the Chinese Christians and from the Christians in many other parts of the world and stand up and say, thus far and no further, because you are putting yourself under the wrath of God? Do we believe the Bible enough to believe that a man who hates God and who tries to impose ungodliness upon godly people will be under the wrath of God? Do you actually believe that? And do you believe it's strong enough to say something to somebody about it? Or even to simply pray about it? And to pray for those who unwittingly are putting themselves under the wrath of God. That's why Paul says, be manly. Act like men. God's men are designed to lead God's church. And so men, that's the challenge before you. We used to have a men's ministry here. And then there came a time when nobody wanted to lead it. And so we don't have a men's ministry. Maybe it's time for the men to say, you know what, we'll let Jesus be the leader of our men's ministry, but we're going to come together and be men for the glory of God. Well, and for the sake of our sons, and for the sake of our daughters. And ladies, when your men stand up and say, we're going to take a stand, we're going to risk some things, Maybe risk our income, maybe risk our pension, maybe risk whatever we have to risk for the glory of God. They need their wife right there beside them saying, I support you. I'd rather starve with you than live in plenty with a man who was compromised before God. Lord Jesus, these are terrible times, perilous times. The problem is we haven't quite seen it yet. I expect to eat more than I need to eat for lunch today. I'm comfortable. We're in a heated room. We're going to get in heated automobiles and drive to our heated houses. We're comfortable. And we're so tempted to think that because we are physically comfortable, all is well. 
Disturb our hearts, Lord. Disturb our souls. Disturb us spiritually. And help us, Lord, to cease being comfortable and to begin being active for the kingdom. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.